On November 8, 2023, KEI hosted a discussion with Paul Triolo, Senior Vice President for China and Technology Policy Lead at the Albright Stonebridge Group. The presentation was a part of the Continuing Korea Policy publication series and focused on the challenges for both Seoul and South Korean technology players as they are caught in the middle of growing U.S.-China competition and technology focus on advanced computing. Well, welcome, everybody, to today's hybrid event uh, featuring a discussion with Paul Triolo uh, about his paper titled uh, South Korea Caught in the Crosshairs of U.S.-China Competition Over Semiconductors. Um, Paul's paper will later be published in KEI's flagship journal, Korea Policy, uh, Volume 1, Issue 3, which we hope to have published before the end of the calendar year. Uh, and I just will say more broadly, Issue 3 examines the the issue, the concept of economic security from different countries' perspectives, and also includes various articles uh, more specific to the Koreas on particular issue areas from energy security, critical minerals, um, and as is the case with Paul's paper uh, on semiconductors and U.S. tech competition. Um, I do also want to highlight uh, volume one, issue two of Korea Policy was recently published. Uh, you can get a hard copy in our foyer, or we will drop a link as I speak uh, to the digital, the digital version online. Uh, and if you go to that link, you can also see um, for most of the papers in issue two, the events that we ran alongside the papers, much like much like today's event. Um, so turning to today, um, yeah. we're very pleased to have Paul Triolo uh, join us to speak about his paper and share his considerable insight uh, into South Korea's complex and challenging position uh, amidst broader U.S.-China tech competition, particularly over semiconductors. And, and we put his longer bio on our website, so I don't want to read the whole thing, but just a few highlights um, for those who are unfamiliar with Paul and his work. Uh, he is a senior vice president for China and technology policy lead at the Albright Stonebridge Group, or ASG, where he's also an associate partner. He advises clients in technology, financial services, and other sectors as they navigate complex political and regulatory matters uh, in the US, China, the EU, India, and, and really around the world. Uh, and among a range of other experiences and uh, qualifications, he spent more than 25 years in senior positions in the US government, analyzing China's rise as a technology power and advising senior policymakers on a broad set of technology-related issues. So to put it simply, you really can't read about the issues we're going to discuss today without, you know, you, you read a handful of articles and you're going to come across Paul um, Paul being quoted and, and sharing his insight uh, on the issues. So his paper, as he will soon discuss, examines how South Korea finds itself in one of the more complex positions among countries with advanced semiconductor industries as the broader global industry really faces uh, restructuring as it's buffeted by U.S. export controls and industrial policies on one hand, and China's reaction uh, to some of these policies and, and some of China's own policies on the other, uh, and how the South Korean government and some of its lead firms, particularly Samsung and SK Hynix, are, are navigating these challenges. So just briefly in terms of run of show, Paul will uh, present his paper for 20 or so minutes, uh, after which we'll turn to some questions that I've prepared ahead of time. And then we'll, we'll turn to you, uh, both in-person audience and virtually as well, uh, for audience Q&A. And if you do have questions online, feel free, as, as Paul presents and as we discuss uh, afterwards, to enter those, and we will turn to them during the Q&A. So without further ado, Paul, thank you for joining us. Thanks um, uh, for that introduction. Um, so 
I was very honored to be asked to write this paper. Um, I think it's one of those issues that not there's not hasn't been a lot of um, in depth, you know, sort of analysis of this problem. It's a complicated problem to to come at. Um, there was a good paper written last summer by a good friend of mine, Mark Terzempa at PIE, which 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 tackled some of these things, and I referenced that in the paper. Um, but I think it's a it's a tricky issue because it really requires getting a little under the hood of the where the industry is on some of these issues um, because the the um, the controls and and the industrial policy that that, um, uh, that Clint mentioned you know it's 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 buffeting the, the entire industry but certain parts of the industry in, you know in more fundamental ways I think um, the the um, it, and it's important I think to understand where some of the, the some of these pressures are coming from so in the paper I tried to lay out sort of how did we get here because you know, as we arrived at October 17th, for example, this year, you know, there, there was a lot of, of stuff that led up to um, the, the outcomes of that and then some of the other associated um, decisions that that, imp that imp have impacted um, the, both the industry more broadly, but we're specifically memory and, and South Korean uh, companies that are such key players in that industry. So I'm coming at this from very much an industry point of view. We have clients all over the the semiconductor supply chain, if you will, or supply chains. I think there isn't just one supply chain. Um, and so I'm sort of day, on a daily, daily basis steeped in the, the the issues that the industry is grappling with as they respond to these twin things, which are, it's easy to say, like, you know, export controls and restrictions and industrial policy, but actually the, the detail of how those play out on a day-to-day -day basis is pretty complicated, particularly for companies and countries outside of the US China competition or outside of the US. So just just to in, in the paper I try to step back a little bit and say you know how do, how do we get to the point where US export controls are for example being enforced extraterritorially. And so you know this is a, this is a process that came out really of the Trump administration um, with initial efforts to to uh, put restrictions on Huawei on US suppliers of Huawei. Um, if you if you remember, I can still remember where I was in May of 2019 when when Huawei was put on the entity list. It's like when you know when JFK was assassinated or something. Um, and you know that because that was a bit of a surprise. It happened just after the U.S. trade uh, dialogue sort of fell apart. The initial agreement fell apart, and within about a week, um, Huawei was on the was on the entity list. Now, and, and that was a really um, big deal. It, it started a chain of events which have, have led up to some of the things we can talk about later. But I think then the big the big deal was uh, the the biggest sort of takeaway from that was that pretty quickly it became apparent that um, that the the impact of that was not what some in Washington had, had hoped for. In part because the export control system wasn't really designed. Or, or was had been designed in an era when um, you know when there were small companies with simple supply chains that maybe manufactured one component of a weapons of mass destruction related system, um, and it wasn't really designed to, to to target and to to impact a company like Huawei or ZTE, which was also had been also part of the debate on the entity list, um, which had these very complicated global supply chains. Um, and and uh, that originated in many many countries and jurisdictions. So the next year um, was was spent internally to the U.S. government trying to figure out another a way to to, to use um, so-called choke points or areas where the U.S. controlled U.S. companies controlled critical technology to figure out how to make that export control more effective. And that resulted in the 2020 um, invention, if you will, of this foreign, the thing called the foreign direct product rule. Um, and its application to Huawei. And that immediately took what had been sort of a bilateral thing, right? I mean, the, 
the controls on Huawei were originally came out of the Iran sanctions, a violation of Iran sanctions, right? Which was very much a U.S. centric thing. Um, but when you when when the, with the foreign direct product rule, this this meant that U.S. export controls now extended globally to any company using U.S. technology to produce semiconductors on behalf of Huawei. Um, and so that's a that's a big deal because right away that involved um, Taiwan, TSMC, Samsung. Korea, maybe to a lesser degree, SK Hynix, but it involved any foundry or any any um, any company that was manufacturing semiconductors. So that's a big that was a big sort of watershed moment. Um, my friend Kevin Wolf talks about that as being you know sort of an unprecedented thing. Um, but but then that also I think has kicked off a longer term debate about um, the sort of multilateral export control system, which which includes um, you know the Fosnauer Agreement, um, which is which which has also been used to extend certain parts of the U.S. export control system to other countries um, uh, in, a, in a sort of multilateral uh, format. Um, and that's important, too, for, for our story here. So I think that that, that, that that sort of, it's important to note that that was a really critical uh, date uh, and a, a critical po policy, which we're still seeing <laughs> the ramifications of. Now, the, the other thing that is important to note here as we sort of work our way towards, you know, where we are now is that for the first time in the Biden era, and, and actually for the first time um, uh, in, in, in any kind of uh, formal uh, setting, we had it, um, last October the, the articulation uh, of, of what the U.S. was trying to do with technology controls in general. So um, last year we had first Secretary Blinken in May put technology competition at the center of U.S.-China relations. And then uh, in uh, in October, September, October, we had uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan articulate what I call the Sullivan Doctrine, which was um, importantly three parts. The first part was the U.S. wanted to maintain an absolute lead over China in technology. The, third, the second one was um, uh, he characterized as a small yard high fence. This is this was an idea that had been kicking around in um, within um, academia for a while. You want to control small numbers of technologies and put a put a, a, a large high, high barriers around them. And then third, uh, he the the the, uh, the National Security Advisor Sullivan stressed that um, advanced compute, biotech, and green tech were strategic pillars of key importance to U.S. national security. Now, advanced compute includes semiconductors, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. AI and quantum computing, and that's a that's an important uh, subset of, of technologies. And of course, that that sort of sounds a little bit like a bigger yard than than uh, than a, the small yard high fence concept. And that's that's important to note. And then pretty quickly within that context, we got the October seventh control package last year, um, which um, which was also another watershed because again, that was that was a, a massive expansion of controls over specifically advanced compute and high performance computing related technologies. And importantly, I think the probably even more important is was were controls over um, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And, and in addition to that, uh, it, the, the, the October 7th package included uh, so-called end-use controls and controls on U.S. persons. Um, and so th this was a very comprehensive package designed to to blunt China's ability to manufacture advanced semiconductors. And it, 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 it cut across a whole range of technologies. So I think that it, it, to, to, that was that's sort of the backdrop then, because I think even up to that point, probably South Korea, South Korea and South Korean companies hadn't been impacted, you know, to, to a to a to a 
to a significant degree by 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 the sort of controls up into that point. But after that point, we have a there's there's definitely the a sort of sea change in in how this impacts uh, South Korean companies. Um, and of course, the other thing happening at the same time last year was the was the U.S. Chips Act coming out in August. Um, and then, um, you know, that's been a process that's, that's, um, we're actually probably going to have the first, um, grants coming out in December, but that's another, that's the industrial policy piece. And so for the last year, that's been churning forward. And again, uh, South Korean companies, um, are involved in that. Samsung is already committed to, for example, to a big, uh, upgrade of its facilities in Texas. SK has committed to, to a packaging and R and D facility. So that's another important backdrop because now the important thing to, that I try to bring out in the paper is these two things are linked together right so it's so one actions in the export control arena can impact um uh, the calculus of companies in the um uh, in the in the sort of industrial policy and and you know friendshoring onshoring whatever you want to call it that that arena which really has heated up over the over the last year so those two those two sort of poles i think are important uh to note so as as we as we as, as we looked looked at october 7th um there were three really big um pieces of the of the of the puzzle here that on the on the sort of control side that were that that end, that have ended up having a big impact on on south korean companies so the first was um um these uh, was a previous set of con uh, of controls around advanced lithography equipment which which was already in place of course as of of, of october 2022 uh, and that was around specifically extreme ultraviolet lithography gear the us had gone to Vosnaur in 2019 time frame um, with controls on EUV, and that meant that um, that co companies in China could not were likely to be have a license denied uh, if they tried to purchase um, equipment UV equipment from ASML in the Netherlands. And we saw this with uh, leading Chinese domestic foundry SMIC um, probably was. May, may have already had a contract that was actually then uh, the license was not not um, approved by the Dutch government um, in that time frame, 2019 time frame. And then um, other, as we'll see, other companies need, and, and particularly in, in logic, are, are would like to use, um, of course, EUV equipment. And memory is a little bit more complicated because um, the the timetable, the roadmap for memory is different. But su suffice to say that that companies in any part of the semiconductor manufacturing business need to keep moving up the value chain using the most advanced technology and have access to the, 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 the latest and greatest tools. And so if you can't plan on that, then that that's a big issue for companies um, who have typically three to five to 10 year timeframes um, with their CapEx expenditures, for example, and, and the tooling, which is a very important part of, uh, of, um, of uh, any business model for, for manufacturing semiconductors. So the multilateral controls were in place then we have, of course, the October seventh package, um, and I think again the most important parts of that were the were the end use controls, um, which set uh, uh, as 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 uh, as, an, as um, nodes requiring a license for 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 selling uh, tools at uh, eighteen nanometers for DRAM and uh, one hundred twenty eight layers for for NAND NAND flash, um, and of course both of those uh, those technologies were are were being and are being manufactured in China by, by South Korean companies. And then the other thing, the final thing was, was the guardrails around the chips act. Um, and so that those just actually came out recently. Um, but they've been, it's been known that they were in the works for a long time. Um, and those were, uh, were guardrails on investment in front end manufacturing facilities in China for recipients of chips act funding. And the exact details of that have been complicated and been negotiated over the last year. Originally they were intended to be negotiated on a, 
company by company basis. And, uh, and then they ended up being uh, put out as sort of broad um, guardrails provisions. Um, and you know, that's, um, that's affected companies in China like TSMC uh, and like, of course, uh, SK Hynix and Samsung that have front-end manufacturing facilities. It's really directed at front-end manufacturing. So if we look at each of these, in the paper, I try to lay out a little more detail each of those sort of those restrictions and how, they, how, how to think about them. Um, when it comes to South Korean companies, just a couple of really quick highlights for each of those. Um, I think for EUV, again, um, if you look at at the roadmaps for for those uh, those for that technology, um, it's really a, a, a several years out um, for the use of EUV, for example, in DRAM uh, and NAND flash, uh, uh, and, and for, for both of those, probably more important ultimately for DRAM than for flash flash. Memory, um, as you as you probably have, have noticed, um, a lot of the advances are in layering. Um, so, 128 layers was the restriction, for example, that was put in the uh, in the October 7th package. But already, companies in China were were beyond 128 layers. That wasn't really even the cutting edge. Um, you're getting 256, you know, and, and well beyond um, in terms of layering. So that's the that's that's been the trend in that industry. Although there's lots of complications about different types of <laughs> Of, uh, of layering and different types of technology used there. But probably if you look at the roadmaps, and I try to lay this out in the paper a little bit, um, we're not talking about sort of a high demand for EUV for memory until the 2025, 2026, 2027 timeframe. Um, and, but all the major companies are looking at EUV, right? Uh, this, again, this is different than for logic which um, which is already the cutting edge has already been using EUV now probably since the 2018, 2019 timeframe. Um, uh, TSMC, but only right now TSMC, Samsung, and um, uh, and Intel are are um, are using EUV because of the of the expense. The systems cost two hundred fifty million dollars, um, and you have to have a really big customer base over which to amortize the cost of that. So EUV is a really um, tricky technology to to deploy, and then the economics, of course, have to be there. Um, but for memory, again, it's it's a the 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 thing to remember about memory is it's a it's a commodity. Um, there aren't really there isn't much really legacy. Um, for example, nodes or mature nodes in memory, it tends to be very cutting edge. And it's a very, very different market um, from logic. And I think that's an important point to make as we talk about the, um, the October 7th package. So, so EUV is one thing. Um, uh, and, and again, I think as, as of now, if, if a, a South Korean company in China tried to apply for a license for, for uh, to get it, uh, or try to buy a, a system from ASML. The 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 the, uh, the license would be rejected. That's a the, the Vassenauer control is a country control, um, but and it but it does give the Dutch government a lot of leeway to determine the licensing. But what has happened is um, when. Um, for example, in the case of SMIC, none of this is really public, but there's been a number of media stories written about this. Um, it, it's likely that the U.S. government went to the Dutch government and, and, and laid out its case to deny the license to, to, the, to, to SMIC in that case. And so um, it would be a little bit different calculus in the case of a South Korean company because um, you know, those companies, for example, would argue they have they have in place very tight controls over the technology. So it, it wouldn't really be possible to divert that technology to a, to a to another Chinese facility. We're talking about systems that take three Boeing 747s to deliver, um, and it takes months. It takes eight months to set up those ASML systems, uh, eight to nine months. 
Um, and so I, the, 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 there's really little chance that those systems could be diverted. Um, and companies like SK, of course, and Samsung have very tight controls over the technology and their facilities in China. So it's a very different animal, in other words, than, than denying a license, for example, for a Chinese fab um, uh, that's operating in China. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's, that's an important thing to know. And that when you talk to people in the in this industry about this of course the, those the companies like sk and, and samsung which have huge sunk capex in china and those facilities of course they would like to be able to move up a normal sort of uh the value chain in terms of technology and and and, and pursue a roadmap which which all companies have in place to to determine where they're going next so that's a, that's one sort of big factor that's there that hasn't really been solved so, that, so coming out of the october 7th package just quickly we had um those end use controls but what happened was um, there was there was a there was some confusion on October 9th <laughs> or, or, or uh, October 7th. That was a Friday. I think October 9th is a Sunday um, because those controls, those end use controls forced all U.S. toolmakers to pull their people out of those facilities in China. And it turned out that those facilities included facilities run owned and operated by South Korean companies, including uh, Xi'an and Xi'an and Wuxi uh, by with Samsung and and. SK Hynix, respectively, and then Dalian, um, which is a complicated facility that is owned by SK, but it's 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 um, under operated by Intel until 2025, uh, under the terms of of the sale of that facility. So Intel has responsibility for the tooling there, um, and so um, there was a sort of a, a scramble over that weekend to put in place an ex a letter an exemption letter that exempted the those companies those multinational companies in China from the controls for a year. Um, and and you know, what was surprising to many in the industry was was that um, that that hadn't been considered previously because because those facilities, for example, in South Korea or in uh, in China operated by South Korean companies produce 40 percent roughly of their global output of, of those those semi those semiconductor memory uh, modules. So. If those facilities had to shut down, that would have had a huge impact on on the market right away, right? Because this is a very market driven and dynamic market where supply and demand um, matter, you know, on a, on a sort of day to day basis. And so, um, apparently, we were within hours, actually, maybe the minutes of those facilities having to be having people having to be pulled out of those facilities before this 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 uh, letter was issued. So, at a minimum, it sounds as though somebody didn't, um, you know, didn't realize that that was. Going to be a problem, uh, and so um, it's 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 a it's a it's it's interesting that that, that this happened. Uh, it's a little surprising that that you know that more um, attention wasn't given to this. And then, of course, the next year has the last year has been spent in to trying to figure out what to do about the, that extension, whether to extend it for another year, um, whether to um, um, figure out another solution. So it, we so in October, around, in mid October, we did have the release finally. Um, and this has been a big issue <laughs> going back and forth. I won't go into the details. A lot of debate about what to do about this. Um, but eventually the solution uh, that has been landed upon, and this this involved, of course, a lot of back and forth between the South Korean government and the U.S. government on the conditions <laughs> for this. Um, those companies, Samsung, SK, were, were put on the so-called verified end, end user list, um, which essentially allows um, the tool makers, for example, to ship tools to those companies Um um, without a license, and again, again the, the controls in, in October seventh were very sweeping in, in, in a number of areas, um, and were very specific on, in terms of end use. So this exempted those companies, uh, the, the toolmakers, um, from this this licensing requirement. And for them, it's a big deal because, for example, um, with with the uncertainty 
about what was going to happen next, um, the 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 toolmakers weren't able to, cons and the companies were not were not clear what to do about shipments of new tools. It takes about eight months to design a tool and then ship it to the factory. These aren't things you pull off the shelf and buy. And so, um, with the uncertainty about whether this one year extension would be would be granted, for example, for another year or two years, um, it was difficult for those companies to continue, for example, to continue upgrading those facilities, which is happening all the time. The tooling is being changed all the time. So this caused a lot of heartburn, shall we say, in industry um, about about that issue. So that that's that. If I had talked to you about two months ago, that would have been a, a big issue um, between the, the South Korean government and the U.S. government because um, companies, um, the, the companies in China and the toolmakers were very uh, concerned about how that was going to be resolved because the, because you know the, these are big facilities; they require a lot of tooling and maintenance, um, and we're talking you know big money here. Um, so then the the third one, the chips guardrails, I think is I won't spend too much time on that, but that's another big issue um, because of the of the requirements about levels of investment in existing front-end manufacturing facilities in China. And basically, that's been another subject of a big uh, set of negotiations between the U.S. government and the Korean government over the last year uh, in terms of, you know, what what that was going to amount to. Um, and and um, the the because this this covered both advanced and legacy facilities in quote foreign countries of concern meaning really really meaning China um, I think that there's still some confusion ultimately about how this is going to be implemented um, the the numbers that were that are being bandied about about in terms of levels of investment allowed five percent or ten percent of existing sort of levels of investment I think are still it's still unclear to me how that's all going to be actually implemented and how it's calculated. Um, but um, you know, again, both both SK and and Samsung are um, participants in the Chips Act, and so that will likely be is being negotiated even as we speak um, as part of an agreement um, for the grants that were, and incentives that are going to be granted on the Chips Act. And again, it was originally designed to be something that the companies um, negotiated directly with the Commerce Department um, and um, and worked out uh, on a sort of company by company basis. Um, I, and I think that's an important um, part of the equation going forward to see how that is actually happens. Because again, um, even though those companies in, in uh, operating in China cannot, as of now, uh, upgrade their facilities to EUV, there's a there's still a major technology roadmap to upgrade those facilities and amortize the costs um, over over uh, the next five to five to seven years. Um, and then um, uh, and you know and that's a that's a and so there's, so there's a there's an ongoing question of sort of investment to expand those facilities, and then there's a question of investment to keep those facilities going, and how that's all going to going to be calculated. Because in in talking to a lot of of U.S. government officials, for example, over the last year, one sort of message that seemed to come through was, well, the U.S. government would prefer that those facilities eventually shut down in in China, right, or that those eventually are phased out. That was sort of at one point, the message that was that seemed to be um, coming out of the of, of this of this issue. Now, in in to, to sort of just and I note in the paper this, I think it's important to say that from the industry point of view, there was surprise, quite a bit of surprise and consternation that memory was even included in those end use controls, right? Because originally it did not it did not appear that memory was going to be part of this, um, but for whatever reason, memory was included. Um, and, you know, the argument from the industry is this is a commodity. Um, it's very different than logic. And so the, the sort of national security argument around memory um, is 
you know, should be different. That, that's at least what the, the point of view of the industry. And I think that's very much the point of view of, of the South Korean government and, and the companies. Because again, remember, these are facilities in China that are that are generating revenue, for example, for um, Samsung and SK. And, and one of their arguments is, and they have a lot of arguments for why uh, it's not a good idea to control you know, memory in general and control the tooling to those facilities in general, is that the, you know, those, those facilities are generating revenue that, that SK and Samsung can use in part to also invest in facilities in the U.S. under the CHIPS Act. This is the same argument that Intel is making, for example, about um, efforts, export controls that result in the cutting off of its markets in China, some of its big, big, big uh, customers, because they're on the entity list, because they're being asked to build facilities in the U.S. And so Pat Gelsinger says things like, well, if you cut off 35% of my revenue from China, then I don't need to build more fabs because, you know, who are my, who are my customers? Um, so the, 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 so the, the, the way to look, I think, at the, at, the, at the memory issue is similar, which is that, you know, those facilities um, in, in, in China where I think Samsung, I was looking at the CapEx numbers, is something like $25 billion in CapEx in those facilities. Um, and that may not represent the whole way to look at it. But I think, um, again, those are big, big numbers. And so if you're asking these companies to build new facilities in the U.S. or in Korea, um, and um, and they're counting on you know sort of that sustained revenue over a decade or whatever from China, you know that's a big deal um, because um, the numbers and the the, the the commercial part of this uh, you know the sort of a, a technology roadmap and there's a commercial roadmap and those both have to make sense for companies um, to be making these big investments right and I think so so that this is sort of where the the industrial policy piece comes together with the export control piece, which is, and and, and why companies like um, uh, SK and Samsung are, are really caught in in the middle of this, uh, and why they need they needed to have some further certainty about both the the end use controls and you know the sort of October seventh package and how that would be extended, and then um, trying to get to some level of certainty around around the um, around the guardrails, because otherwise if they're if their accounts are running the numbers, you know, for the next decade and trying to understand uh, how they how they invest uh, incrementally, for example, in the U.S., um, it becomes very complicated if you don't know, um, if you can't count on certain kinds of um, revenue streams. So that's a big deal. And then finally, let me just, uh, and I, I mentioned in the paper, um, you know, there's other sort of interesting pieces of this as we go forward. Um, there's just three quick things. One is, I think, you know, at some point this is going to generate and already has calls for some sort of different export control regime outside of Bostonauer that because Bostonauer is dysfunctional now because Russia, of course, is a member. And so if you're you're going to argue that export controls are a good tool to control technology and China's access to technology, then arguably you need a, a different type of system because even the existing export control system export control systems in Boston hour were not designed for the purposes that it's being used for now, right? So again, those were designed in, in, for weapons of mass destruction. They weren't designed to maintain U.S. technology leadership or to punish companies for human rights violations, right? Um, so it's so the, there's been a lot of churn about this. Um, Emily Benson at CSIS just came out with a paper um, arguing for some scenarios about how you get to a post-Boston hour world. Um, so that's one thing. And I think South Korea is going to be a you know, key part of all these discussions because when it comes down to it, um, Boston hour includes a lot of countries, but for semiconductors, you know, there's only a few countries that matter, right? Taiwan, Japan, uh, South Korea, US, um, and EU, uh, and certain countries in the EU. So you could see a smaller group of, of like-minded countries 
um, come together around some sort of new export control regime. We've already seen this a little bit with the Japan and Netherlands participating and sort of aligning to some degree with the October 7th controls. Um, and so that's, that's, that's something to definitely watch how South Korea plays in that. You've seen, I, I, I didn't mention the CHIPS4 alliance, which, which I, I probably should mention in the paper, but that, that's something that came out of the State Department, um, a State Department initiative to, to sort of coordinate around industrial policies they, they just, at one point they said we're not going to they wouldn't deal with export controls because that's sort of a different a different issue um, that really has gone nowhere as far as I can tell um, the, the chips for alliance in part because a lot of the stuff um, the chips act is really performing that function because the chips act and the chips program office for example are coordinating with Japan South Korea and, and Taiwan in terms of their company's um, investment in the U.S. and so there's some, already some uh, effort there so that's one thing that watch going forward is does the industrial policy side of this involve more coordination between the key players here including the eu um, and then finally on the export control side um interestingly you know you have another situation um in china where the u.s controls led eventually to the um uh, and, and, and the inclusion of ymtc which is the big competitor to South Korean companies uh, and CXMT, both in, in NAND and DRAM, to be put on the NA list. Um, and so this resulted in Micron, the uh, US uh, leading US DRAM maker, they also do some NAND, being um, targeted by the Chinese for a cybersecurity review and a, an apparent ban on some of the sale of some of their products uh, to Chinese critical information infrastructure operators. And so that is important because um, in the context of that, the Korean companies were asked not to backfill for Micron. Um, and that's a very complicated issue because, um, you know, these are commodity products to um, the companies may not know what channels their products are being sold and, and who they're going to. Um, and so that, that was when I talked to South Korean <laughs> um, players in this, you know, that was, there was a lot of confusion around that because this is a market, you know, it's a market driven sector. So to, to, to ask a company not to, not to exercise its market uh, and uh, prerogatives, you know, in, in a, even in a case like this was what many felt was, was sort of a bridge too far. Um, so that's yet to be seen um, how much impact uh, the Chinese ban or restrictions on Micron will will affect that market. Many people in the industry think that that it will have a big impact on Micron. And then the question of who who what companies sort of end up benefiting from that um, is still still to be seen. But I think probably uh, South Korean companies will 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 have to step in to and, and supply some of these end users in China. And then finally, the the Huawei um, the Huawei Mat 60, which came out in September, is another interesting. Uh, angle to this, which because in that phone, which was was uh, produced um, by leading Chinese foundry SMIC, um, but also includes memory from SK Hynix, and so that was a, as a result of a teardown um, that um, uh, that um, uh, DRAM and NAND was 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 found in in the phone. SK is doing a doing an investigation of how that got there, but again, this is memory that could have been it's a commodity could have been stockpiled. Um, it's probably it's older DRAM that, that they found in their DDR RAM, um, and so that's another example of how um, uh, you know the the Korean companies uh, and and particularly memory is is a big issue because in China the end use controls um, coming from October seventh have really uh, put a put a big um, question mark over the future of China's domestic semiconductor industry, and so it makes the role of non-Chinese companies in the, in the memory sector even more important because it's an area where probably Chinese companies can't 
um, replace uh, Western companies, for example, um, it, to, to be providing that really critical uh, component for things like smartphones. So in that case, I try to cover all those issues in the paper. Um, and um, I've already thought of other things that, you know, probably should be added in there as, I'm, as I've been talking to Clinton and others. So, um, but really honored to have a chance to try to lay out some of this stuff. And then um, I think the, the really key is sort of where we go from here on all this, because I think, um, you know, for those companies, while some of these issues have been resolved, at least temporarily, the extensions, you know, the, the, through the, the verified uh, end user um, listing uh, and the guardrails is probably something they can, they can work out. The, there's still the, the, the bigger issue of that longer sunk capital investment in China um, and how that works out in the context of those companies also um, participating in things like the CHIPS Act. Um, and in general, the industry is, is under a lot of stress from, the, from those two, the two um, big issues of export controls and industrial policy. So let me stop there. All right. Sorry, went a little bit over. No, that's okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. I, we, you know, one of the things we try we strive and we ask our authors to strive to do with Korea policy papers is to thread the needle between, and this is not easy, between making it compelling to an already expert audience, but also being informative to people, you know, sort of neophytes to right. it, right? This is not a topic for <laughs> I I've had that issue before where like if you dumb it down too much, then it's like it's sure it, it gets but I, I appreciate that. You need to sort of just Strike that to balance. strike that balance, yeah. right? And I, but and I think in a your paper does a good job of that. And and I know there were some folks online who were asking where is the paper. So the paper, just to clarify, I, I think I said this at the start, but but to reiterate, will come out in uh, issue volume one, issue three of Korea Policy before the end of the calendar year. So after after some updates and whatnot, it will be available. Um, so I had a few questions. Actually, listening to you, I've I've thought up some more questions, but I'm going to stick to the ones that I, I previewed to you ahead of time. Um, <laughs> And just start with the one um, that I cited, um, TSMC's founder, Morris Changs, he called the U.S. effort to reshore uh, semiconductor production a, quote, very expensive exercise in futility, end quote. And so I asked you sort of a two-part follow-up to that. What do you think of, of this critique of his? And relatedly, what challenges do South Korean and, of course, other uh, foreign firms face in moving forward? Um, with their considerable, already considerable investments um, in semiconductor fabs here in the U.S. Uh, under the Chips Act, that's no, a great question. It's a great question, and um, yeah, we we and we've been working with companies that are applying for Chips Act funding. Um, one of the things, of course, that that um, Secretary Raimondo has stressed is workforce development, and I think that's mm. that's probably the biggest challenge here, right? I mean, because you have these places like Taiwan and South Korea and and to some extent, Japan, um, where there is a long history of advanced manufacturing, for example, in, 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 in not just semiconductors, but, but arguably, of course, most importantly in semiconductors. And so that means the education system is sort of tuned to the needs of advanced manufacturing. Um, uh, the economics are sort of there, right, in terms of the workforce and how much you're paying them and how much how you're compensating them. And how they're being trained going forward. So, in in trying to um, sort of reverse the, the the trends in the industry, which you know we're we're, we're thirty years or forty years in the making, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of optimizing, essentially around say memory around soul and logic and foundry capacity around Sinchu and you know Tainan and and and, and Taijong, right? The, the, the forces that led to that were were market driven largely some government intervention but you know largely i think driven by innovation and smart engineers and, and good business models um so now governments are trying to sort of reverse that and so 
they're doing it at a time when, of course, building a cutting edge fab is cost $40 billion, you know, at a minimum. Um, and so the economics are tricky <laughs> right off the bat, right? Because you're reversing the, the economics have led to this sort of division of labor. And now you're saying, well, we don't like that because of other complicated national security reasons or uh, and, and concentration in, in Asia, for example. But we're going to try to reverse that. So, but the but the the problem is that the um, that that these issues of of um, particularly workforce, skilled workforce, and 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 the sort of cost issue are really front and center. I think Morris Chang also though is talking about um, he believes very much in sort of the cultural aspect of mm. this. So he's saying basically, look, the U.S. isn't really serious about advanced manufacturing because culturally, you know, everybody's getting an MBA here. But if you want to run an advanced fab at scale, you know, you need these, you need technicians in bunny suits that are willing to spend hours and hours a day in the fab. You need people who are willing to be on call 24-7 to service a tool in the fab. Um, and so his argument is complicated. It's based on both sort of cost and and then also on, uh, I think, culture. Because TSMC has had a facility in the U.S. for a long time sort sure. of in, in Washington. And I think so they understand, they at least claim they understand the, the cultural aspect of it. Um, but to me, the workforce part is really the hardest part. So um, when we work with clients, for example, you know, the, the big part of their application for chips is workforce development. But that's a hard thing, right? You can't really guarantee. You can you can set up a, a an associate program with Arizona State University or Ohio State, whatever, right? Which all these companies are doing. TSMC is working with ASU is going to be the, a mm -hmm. big beneficiary here. But you can't guarantee. Um, like right now, the six or seven six or seventh graders are going to be the you know the the the, the technicians and the engineers in these fabs, right? So you can't guarantee that those sixth graders, for example, are going to go through the system and come out as a you know a fully qualified engineer at the end of the day. So so it's tricky. The workforce part is really tricky, and I think, um, but that's part of the goal, right? Is to sort of okay, we need to exercise these muscles and we need to do that. But the problem is for companies, for example, it's hard because they they can't sort of take a a running, you know, leap at this. Um, TSMC, for example, in, in Taiwan, they get 80% of the PhDs graduating from Taiwan universities go and work for TSMC. I think that's the, it's been, you know, 60 to 80%. I think by the, the estimate is by the end of the decade, it would be 80%. So they can count on a certain amount of work. They can count on their workforce. But here, it's tricky, right? And then, for example, TSMC in Arizona, they they um, they had a hard problem, problem just finding technical people to install, to build a clean room. You need you need a lot of clean rooms in the fab, and then importantly, you need to be able to install things like the EUV gear, right? That's very specialized capacity, and so there was some, there they they were working with unions, you know, that pipe fitters union four 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 four, and it turns out that you know those those unions and those workers don't have the skills, right? Not surprising, um, so they had to bring in a hundreds of engineers from Taiwan. And then the, the, the unions were fighting that, uh, even though they were bringing them in to help train the train them to not really replace them. Um, but that's a huge issue. So the workforce piece involves not just sort of the, the engineers and the, and the technicians to run the facility, but sort of how do you build um, these facilities and ensure that they're um, you know up to spec. Because TSMC can't take a chance with a $250 million piece of gear. You know, hey, you got go figure out how to install that, you know, <laughs> um, and we'll hope it works, right? So, you know, they, they so they, that's why they had to bring in the the the, the skilled people, and, and they and Samsung and, and and SK are in the same boat, right? Because they have to they have to install the complicated equipment, build clean rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So all the companies that are that are involved in the Chips Act are are running up against um, this issue of 
both sort of immediate need for trained workers to build stuff and then sort of the longer term, how does the education system crank out people who, who want to work in these facilities? This is not easy work, by the mm -hmm. way, right? The, mm -hmm. It's not sexy work to, to be, uh, you know, in a clean room for, you know, for long periods of time. So it's th that that gets to the cultural issue. So I think that the jury is still out a little bit on that. So when you say, do I... I, I, I understand the the the, the problem. Um, it, it's just not clear to me that if we do end up building, you know, TSMC facilities in Arizona, Intel in Arizona, Intel in Ohio, Samsung in Texas, we're going to have these sort of clusters. Um, you know, the question is still, I still think the jury's out as to how the education system without, say, you know, immigration reform that, that reforms the H-1B system, whatever. Mm -hmm. we, need, we need massive immigration reform. How we get to that um, at the end of the day, because it's, it's, it's a big issue. And then the other part of it is supply chains. How much of your supply chain do you bring to the U.S., for example? Mm -hmm. And that's a scale problem. So TSMC has... 2,500 suppliers in Taiwan. They're probably going to bring 100 to, to to Arizona, and then those suppliers have to have a scale. They can't just work for so they so they've been taken to the Intel facilities, and they'll probably supply that because the problem is that the, the industry is really driven by cluster effect. Taiwan is essentially a whole cluster. You can put somebody a technician on the train in Sinchu and get them to Tainan or Taichung in 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 minutes. You know, in 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 an hour and a half. I've taken the high-speed rail many times between those locations. And that, that's a huge advantage. So you can, you can, you can, your workforce, for example, your, your technicians can service multiple facilities in, in a very short time. So if we, if we have clusters in Arizona, Texas, and Ohio, you know, you, you, you're not going to have that effect. So the problem then is how do, how does the cluster and the supply chain around those facilities develop? Because that's a, that's a huge issue. Um, and it's, it's, you know, again, when the cost is, 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 is the main, these are, these are costly facilities, costly investments. So the, the sort of incremental costs of, of running those facilities have to be well managed. So when President Biden goes to Arizona and says, you know, this this is going to this is made in the U.S. It's good for U.S. consumers. Well, it depends. Right. It's going to be much more expensive. Actually, the chip the the companies like Apple and NVIDIA are going to have to decide how to pass that cost on to customers. But for example, the, the the wafers coming out of that facility in Arizona, there's not enough of them to justify, for example, an advanced packaging facility in, in Arizona. So those are going to have to be shipped back to Taiwan and packaged and then maybe shipped to China to be incorporated into something or, you know, whatever. So, so the, even though they're going to be made in the U S the, the rest of the downstream supply chain is, will you know, will not necessarily be in the U S um, for example, I'll just give you one quick example, GPUs, all the GPUs in the world are made and packaged right now in Tainan. I was sitting in the, in, in the, in Tainan science park a couple of weeks ago and within a mile radius of me, all the GPUs are made and packaged. But the packaging is the really key element there, and that's what the bottleneck is. That's why there's a big shortage of GPUs. Um, and there's no justification to build. That's a $3 billion facility the upgrade they're just doing now to Fab 6 in, in Tainan. And there's no, no way that you could justify putting a, a, a packaging facility like that in Arizona um, when the, you know, even if all those, even if all the chips coming out of that were GPUs, because it just wouldn't achieve the right, the, the scale to justify that. So, so that's the, the problem with reshoring is, mm -hmm. is, is it's, it's sort of problems, like, right? Yeah. There's multiple problems. Not, not, that's not saying that, that those aren't overcomable. Right. Sure, I mean, sure. but the, the question still is when, when we wake up in 2030, what percentage of advanced chip manufacturing will be in the US or what, what what percentage of chip manufacturing in general i just saw a study that said it will be 8% now the goal i think of the, you know that one of the goals is 
is to get the U.S. to 20% by 2030. But the reality is we'll probably go from like 7% to 8 or 9%. Um, just because of these economics and some of these problems here. So it will be it will not be insignificant, but it will not be enough to move the needle to reduce dependence on Taiwan, for example, for advanced uh, advanced fat. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, there's no there's, there's so much there. I, I, I can't help but think of the movie Feel the Dreams as though like if you build it, they will come is, is the idea behind this. But we first we have to build it. Right. And you you, you outlined some of the, the workforce issues with that. And then they may not necessarily come or, or, you know, some of these ASU grads, they go to TSMC's fab specifically for a few years, put that on their resume and then they get, they get headhunted elsewhere and, and, and leave. Right. And right. so, um, yeah, there's the, 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 the pay, the pay structure, right? I mean, you can get a, an entry level engineer, software engineer can go to, go to Google and get, you know, a huge, a huge salary differential. The problem is that it's also just, it's the type of engineering. It's really hardware engineering. Mm. Japan is, is grappling with this too. They're trying to make it more sexy in Japan to be a hardware engineer mm. um, because they've, um, they have their own version of the, the chips, the, the sort of long-term strategy. They've decided to go very narrow and target, you know, really advanced packaging and, 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 two, and two nanometer technology and not try to compete at, at some of the other parts of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the sector. Um, but the, their challenge is also just, is, is, is still the, um, the workforce mm. issue. Um, yeah. Given time, I, I, as you know, I have other questions, but I, I sure. do, we have some folks here, so I want to give absolutely um, anyone if, if in-house or if there are questions online, a chance to, to pose a question uh, to Paul. Is anybody here? We, we have a mic. So if you do have a question, we have one online. Okay, what is what is the uh, question online, Andy? Sure, thank you. Uh, the online question is, China announced some countermeasures to retaliate for the October 7th restrictions and other U.S. government actions. So for rare earths, Micron, and Apple sales, what are potential risks from retaliation for Korean companies? Great question. Great question. So we get this asked this all the time, of course, by clients. Um, so... The Chinese response function has been very interesting to see because up until really this year, they didn't, they hadn't responded significantly. Um, and so even though, for example, they rolled out in May of 20, May of 2019, they rolled out the so-called unreliable entities list, which was sort of an analog to the U.S. entity list, but they hadn't actually used it until this year when they, when they used it against Raytheon and, and Lockheed Martin. Um, for Taiwan arms sales. Um, so starting the beginning of this year, our assessment for clients is that, that China will respond, right? But the, the response that China will, will take is very complicated because they don't want to do things that will disadvantage their companies or disadvantage their economy um, or further poison the business climate, which is already pretty tricky in China, right? Um, because of uh, you know, big drop-off in foreign investment, et cetera. So that they're, they're trying to be careful in how they respond. Um, the, Micron, um, the Micron targeting, I think, was very specifically responding to this YMTC being a target of both October 7th controls and then December being placed on the entity list. Um, and nobody in industry was surprised by this because Micron had been known to be sort of outspoken in wanting to YMTC to, to be subject to some of these controls. Um, and so nobody was surprised by this. Um, and But again, the terms of that are still being worked out. So it, it might turn out that Micron, the hit on Micron sales in China may be 
not as bad as originally thought. You know, they might be they might be restricted from some parts of um, Chinese critical infrastructure, critical infrastructure, but it it may not be as bad. They've been uh, just yesterday um, there was a story in the media story that um, you know that that um, the the CEO of Micron had met with. Um, uh, Chinese Minister of Commerce, and so they they have investments in China, so they're working through all this. Um, the the materials piece, I think, is the most complicated one, and most and maybe the most important one, because um, when I mentioned the the Sullivan Doctrine, which was you know that the U.S. was going to treat these three sectors most important, the third sector, um, green technology, is a is a reversal of the first one, where U.S. companies and Western companies dominate those supply chains. Mm-hmm. In the third category, green tech, Chinese companies dominate those supply chains, and we're talking here about critical minerals. You know, there really are, are like 70 critical minerals, right? and each one has its own specialized supply chain. Rare earths are really important, for example, for magnets. Rare earth magnets are used in, in EVs, and they're really critical, for example, to, to make sure the battery in an EV is used most efficiently with the motor. So you need, you need, um, you need um, rare earth elements and batteries made from them um, to, to do, to really, the green tech revolution is, is probably impossible without rare earths. Wind turbines use them. It's a matter of efficiency and, and gaining the, um, you know, uh, sort of economies of scale with energy use. So, but it's complicated because those, those rare earths, for example, are sent to intermediate providers and then to a variety of end users. So unlike in the case of the U.S., which has put controls on specific comp- Chinese companies or specific end users, and, and it's, they're sort of identifiable. Here, if China decides to control these, these materials, for example, um, the impact of, of those controls is less clear, right, um, than, if, than if you're targeting a particular t- technology going to a specific company, because it's going into a, a broader supply chain where there may be two or three intermediate steps before you get to the final product. So last summer, in response to media stories about um, updates to the October 7th controls that were eventually issued on October 17th, um, the Chinese announced these, these controls on graphite or, or on the gallium and germanium. And gallium and germanium are used in the semiconductor industry. And so South Korea, <laughs> South Korean companies got a little bit uh, concerned about this, as did many companies in the industry. Now, gallium and germanium are used in a lot of different things, but they are critical for certain kinds of semiconductor production. But so far, the Chinese haven't restricted those exports. And this included a number of compounds too, like gallium arsenide and gallium nitride, which are really important for certain kinds of advanced semiconductors. Um, but they're, they're, they're putting these controls in place, but they haven't actually pulled the trigger in terms of how they're going to use them yet. I think they're, they're, they're is typically they're, they're putting in place tools, then they will decide how to use them depending on, you know, the, on, on the situation. And then, and then in response, of course, to October 17th, they, they put these controls on graphite. Now graphite is really important because Chinese con- companies control, you know, 90% of the graphite, both artificial and, and man-made graphite, um, artificial and, and natural graphite exports and that's a critical component of ev battery anodes right and it turns out of course that south korean companies lg um, and sk the, the, the battery part of that uh, sk um, are critical users of graphite and, and that's the case with japanese companies and with um you know chinese companies of course um so but again they put in place this control i don't think they've pulled the trigger on this that is actually going, would have a much more potentially more direct impact if they cut off the export of certain kinds of graphite. And it depends on how they do that because graphite is a commodity, but then for EV batteries, it turns out Chinese companies also dominate the IP for producing the sort of qualled battery 
graphite components. Um, and so that's even more important than the material is the IP. And, and, and they could also control that too, um, going to specific companies. And that could, for example, if they decided to restrict anode, you know, graphite anode quality uh, materials to South Korean companies, um, that could be a, that would be a big deal in response to, but again, they're they're retaliating for something here, right? They're not going to mm. put these controls on for no reason. So, um, and again, that's why South Korean companies operating in China, you know, are, are do not want to run afoul of the Chinese system <laughs> and 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 see retaliation, right? And this is a, this is in general the case with, for example, U.S. toolmakers or the Dutch toolmakers, the Japanese toolmakers. They're worried about retaliation in China for some of these controls, right? Now we haven't really seen that. Yet, but the Chinese, you know, could respond in a very targeted way. For example, um, and now they have these tools, both graphite, and then they just the latest thing was the rare earths. It looks like it's just a notification, a transaction. I don't think they put a licensing requirement on this. They could they they want to get visibility on on this. I think where all the rare earths elements are going because you know this is a big big field. Um, so I think it's a first step to try to understand where what where the rare earths are going, and then they will develop a way or a, a strategy to, to selectively use that that tool. But they have to be very careful too, right? Because if they, when you start getting into materials, you know, these are markets, although they're not really markets, they're not like commodity markets like oil or other things. They're they're more complicated than that because there's a lot of intermediate steps in the process. But they, they since they have a, they have a, they, their companies dominate those, those supply chains, they're going to use those, those supply chains. But I think they haven't figured out how to do that yet in a targeted way. But but it's coming, so you know, keep keep it keep keep an eye on this. Um, I have each response you give. I it it, it raises further questions that I want to ask. Um, we're, we are running up close. That's we're a little fast on the clock. So we, I'm going to ask. I'm going to give anybody in in the audience if they want to pose a quick question. No, okay, just got a question. Come on, Josh. No, Josh has a question. All right, um, really quickly. Um, so you mentioned um, in the paper, of course, mm -hmm. South Korea has received another waiver, sort of an indefinite waiver. Um, uh, yes. On the on the 2022 export controls, you know, to exports to semiconductors and chip making equipment in China. Um, one question I have is: so they've received this waiver, but do not the the national security guardrails, the five and ten percent restrictions on you know more advanced and legacy facilities. Wouldn't that itself impose a degree of of control as well? Because you have to you have to bring in certain machinery right. to upgrade these things, right? So right. they've gotten a waiver, but how? I, I, essentially, the broader question is: How dependable is this waiver? And of course, we have a presidential election here next year, and given the amount of investment and the timescales involved in the in these firms' planning, right. Right. their uncertainty yeah. must be just hardly mitigated. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. And it gets to... It, and we have very, very little right, time. Sorry. Well, it gets to the issue of what is considered investment, right? Because, and what's considered sort of ongoing maintenance or support to the facility, sure. right? Because I think the intent, my sense is the intent of the guardrails is to prevent the companies from expanding those facilities, yeah. expanding the capacity. So I think that's what the, that's what the, that's what that five and the 10% number is really directed at. I think though that the ongoing maintenance and support part of it will probably not be as, as impacted. Now, I think, again, I think it comes down to the whole, the original intent of that whole guardrail issue was to negotiate a sort of one-on-one -on -one agreement with the Commerce Department that, so the Commerce Department understands 
the roadmap and understands, you know, what, what, what's going on here. Because as you rightly point out, you know, these, these facilities are constantly, you know, the next generation of tools has to be commissioned and then it takes, you know, months to get them designed and installed, et cetera. That's and a, this that's, is that's, part that's, of the upgrade. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of upgrading them up until a point, mm. right. Where, where they're going to be need to be upgraded to say EUV. And then that, you know, then, then the, 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 the there'll be a complicated calculus as to, what to do then? So sure. the problem is that these are being, these controls are being decided by an administration, and that administration might not be there in another year or two, right? Um, and so that's also creating some some uncertainty here. So how how all this is going to be implemented? Um, you know, I think they're going to try to lock in some of this in this negotiation and try to clarify some of these things. But you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. This has never been done before, right? Trying to define what a company can do or not do to invest in facilities mm-hmm. that it already has, you know, $25 billion of CapEx. In. So it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, but I think, um, it, it, so yeah, I may have, and, and we may, I may want to clarify some in the paper, this, uh, this issue of uncertainty is really critical, right? Mm-hmm. For companies that are in this business. And so does that inclusion on the unverified list really relieve that, that, that particular uncertainty and then how do the guardrails interact with that and it's, it's tricky I, I i don't know if i can say definitively that 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 that, that that's all been worked out the yeah, details yeah. of that but so i think there's additional uncertainty there okay. absolutely um well paul thank you so much i say this every time there's never an hour is never enough time um but of course the paper will uh lay this out and 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 there'll be further updates just based on our conversation yeah, yeah today. I, 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 um I'm sorry. I had I had, no, 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 I had no, no, a lot no. of like writing commitments, and this this was really important because. But it's hard because it's complicated. Once you get the basic stuff organized, you know the, the 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 those kinds of details are hard because you really have to. Some of this is not. It's not easily available. You have to talk about people. And sure. Like where where the actual needle is on that. Well, this is expressly what the, an event like this is exactly yeah, for. No, so I, um, I appreciate you're sort of. I appreciate you reaching out because it really requires you know some. Sort of really focused look on this to understand sort of where we're going on this because it's not, you know, the and the media coverage is okay, but it's it doesn't it misses a lot of we want to get we want to get the nuance, um, which is which is where the the devil is in the details here. Well, thank you for laying out uh, so many obviously interlinked and complex details, um, and thank you for joining us. We will, uh, as I said, be publishing the whole issue before the end of the year which will also include a paper uh, to a point Paul raised on uh, South Korea's energy security and critical minerals, which is next Wednesday. Um, James Bowen from the Perth U.S. Asia Center, uh, which is a foreign policy think tank in uh, based in the University of Western Australia. He's making a long trip to come join us here. He'll be presenting his paper, uh, The Raw Materials of Economic Security, South Korea's evolving energy and critical minerals oh, policy. I, I will definitely want to come to that. So, yeah, so please do. This will be a hybrid event great. as well. Yeah. Same time, 10 to mm-hmm. 11 next week. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. And for those online, the link to that to RSVP for in-person or hybrid is online right now. Uh, so thank you again, Paul, for joining. No, no these, are the, these are the issues of the day here. I mean, there's nothing more important than, you know, semiconductor supply chains and EV battery supply chains. And South Korea, for better or worse, is smack dab in the middle of all of these things. So, uh, well, thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.